we decided to set up a social enterprise, not charity, precisely because of the problematic position of of uh, or let's say experience of the NGO sector in, in in Yemen. And when you see that actually there's been a lot of money that's been going into Yemen through NGOs, and what's happened recently is that 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 amount of money has been dwindling. Right, people like donors are, are starting to experience donor fatigue, uh, and the situation in Yemen is exacerbating because there's no economic development. Then you start to have a really problematic situation. So what's really important, I think, is that social enterprises are fundamental to Yemen now because what we've seen is that aid alone cannot do it. There needs to be vehicles, uh, engines inside Yemen that can take money, generate more money, and then distribute that to, to the local community. But that's what Kimber Coffee does. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza Shah your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffect, a crowdfunding platform resourcing organizations shaping a benevolent economy inspired by justice and ethics. If you're new to our work, over the last decade, our team has enjoyed spotlighting organizations at the forefront of advancing financial equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now deepening this work through our Reinvision Business podcast to dive deeper into what models are working and shaping the next economy. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll amplify models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth the blueprint for an economy redesign. Welcome to a new episode of Re-Envision Business. Today, I'm joined by Farah Shabani, founder and CEO of Kima Coffee. Born and raised in the UK, Faris frequently visited Yemen growing up, developing a strong connection to the country. Seeing the massive economic and social challenges Yemen faced, Faris gradually developed the ambition to improve the lives of his native Yemeni people. Faris acquired several years of experience in process engineering, business development and commodity trading, and used this to develop Yemen's energy infrastructure and offer basic power services to the country. In 2015, civil war broke out in Yemen and forced Faris to seek alternative ways to support Yemen. The search led Faris to working in Yemeni coffee, which he views as a fundamental part of Yemen's history and a critical part of its post-conflict socio-economic recovery. In 2016, Faris established Kima Coffee with the aim of generating sustainable livelihoods for Yemen's smallholder coffee producers through re-establishing Yemen as a renowned speciality coffee origin. Keep listening to today's conversation and hear the captivating story of Kima Coffee and how their work has transformed lives in Yemen. Faris, years later, and I can still recall just how captivated everyone was by your incredibly moving story of starting Kima Coffee and what inspired that journey. And that is why I am so excited to have you on Re-Envision Business today. Hi, Shiza. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. And it's, uh, it's nice to uh, reconnect uh, and excited for the conversation. Yeah. And, and, you know, the work that's happening at Kima Coffee is so needed. And I think it's a prime example of how businesses should be run. And there are not enough examples of enterprises like yours. And I think that's why it's crucial that we create space like we're creating today to hear about your story and the work that you're doing, but also to amplify these models to show the world that it can be done. And so 
Before we get into the specifics of Kima Coffee, I'd like to rewind a little bit. You say that the core purpose behind Kima Coffee is to rebuild Yemen's speciality coffee industry and to restore hope in this once great nation. What were those collection of moments that brought you here today and has inspired your desire to make this work your core focus? Um, that's an interesting question. So I think um, when you look at the the, the core the core behind our core mission, right, which is restoring hope, uh, it's it's very much human centric, right? It's it's very much giving people purpose. Uh, and so I guess the 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 the, the, the underlying principle behind Kima Coffee is supporting people, helping people. So I think that's where to that's where I'd begin. You know, what 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 were the, what were the moments that led me to having a desire to doing something positive for people or society? I think that's an interesting question for anyone who's 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 on a social enterprise uh, 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 mission. Uh, why why do we care? Where does this care come from? Where does this drive actually? Where did it begin? And and for me, I think it, it's 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 start, it's well, it's driven by empathy. And empathy was driven by by negative experiences as a child, by actually experiencing injustice. Um, and um, and if you if you read books of psychology, you will typically find that empathy is linked to experiencing injustice yourself. Um, and for me, you know, growing up as someone of Yemeni heritage in the UK, in the north of England, um, since the age of since a very young age, age of four or five. I would experience uh, racism, like I guess many people did, um, and uh, and I think that really, you know, I've had I've I've, I've I've asked myself the question times: Why do I care? Where does this? Where does it come from? Like, uh, why do I want to help people in the first place? Uh, which is an interesting question, um, and I think it starts there for me. It's this deep, deep, deep empathy that was driven by uh, experiencing injustice yourself. Um, uh, and I think that's the fa- that's probably the foundational driver I have for everything that I do, and, and Kima Coffee being kind of my main whatever day day work activity now. Um, um, and then I think moving forward, growing up, being someone from Yemen, and looking back and 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 growing up in the UK, and I think comparing those two experiences, I would I then became very aware of the difference. The, the difference in living standards, the difference in lifestyles between both Yemen and the UK, um, and I guess that uh, that you know that that made me uncomfortable, right? Driven by this empathy, it made me uncomfortable. I was kind of angry and happy at why are there people in Yemen who would uh, people who I cared for, people even from my family who would who would who would live on, you know, what I would spend on a on a burger or a meal, they would live on for a month, uh, and I guess. You know, fast forwarding 20, 30 years later, um, it made it a natural manifestation for me to then look to do something in Yemen, specifically in Yemen, uh, coming from the UK and acknowledging that I come from a very privileged background in the UK uh, to try and, 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 and contribute to that inequity, you know, the inequity that exists in, in, in Yemen. Um, and coffee was the vehicle. And then well, I guess how I got into coffee might be, uh, might be something that we tackle separately. Only if you feel comfortable to do so, Faris. Um, but when you say you had experiences of injustice, what did those look like and how did they shape who you are today? Bullying and racism, really, you know, a series of experiences of negative experiences in school um, where I was the only, you know, brown kid 
in uh, in the classroom. I was one of the only brown kids in school, and so I guess I became a target, an easy target. Uh, and so when you when you when you when you live through experiences like that, I think it it, it makes you very sensitive um, to injustice, having dealt with it and experienced it and tasted it in a very real way yourself. And then I think it leads to two ways. I think they can manifest in two ways: either destructive energy or productive energy. Um, and I think you know because because part of it is you're angry at the injustice. Uh, and then well, what we're trying to do with Kimmel Coffee is, is challenging that pro- productively. And I think that's that's been my life journey: how to take that 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 anger at injustice and how to channel it productively to something that can actually do something positive for people. I'm so sorry to hear that you went through that, Faris. What you just said um, now was um, really interesting. How you either turn that into something destructive, that experience, or you turn it into something productive. And I, I don't think I've ever actually thought of it in that way, where when you are ex- experiencing some kind of injustice, how that actually shapes you into, and how that might have actually led me to my own journey and how I'm, you know, I decided to, you know, delve into the world of social enterprise. But it's, it's just such a traumatic experience to go through that. And you just don't want that kind of future to exist for the next generation. And I imagine that may have been, you know, something that you had set out to solve with your own journey. I'm curious to understand how that took you to back to your um, ancestral roots. I know that your family background has also played a role in your own journey in building Kima Coffee, but then also kind of realizing that actually you want to take that journey back to Yemen and then also delve into the world of of, of coffee and use that as a vehicle to to do something transformative. So I'm curious to hear how what made you basically make those decisions along the way. Yeah, yeah. So so I think just a quick one because it's a really interesting discussion. I, I think as sorry as I am about those negative experiences, I am still I am still thankful for them because had they not existed, maybe I wouldn't be doing this. Maybe I'd be doing something very, you know, normal. Oh, I don't know, normal for for lack of a better word, but something that wouldn't be wouldn't have a social mission behind it. So so I think mixed feelings about about negative experiences are complicated. Right. Uh, how, yeah. how I got into 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 coffee, so. Um, for me, so, so growing up, right, I had this social drive, I want to do something. And then, like I said, you know, going back and forth, I'd go back to Yemen every year. So I would see my, my extended family and, and, and my friends there. Uh, and I, I spawned some sort of attachment to the country. Um, and, and, and I, and I was very comfortable, you know, with being part of both cultures, you know, I was very comfortable being both British and Yemeni. That was never, that was never a, a dichotomy for me. Um, and so I would go back, but but like I said, what was obvious was I was like, wow, there's really a difference in in, in how people live between this country and that country, and uh, and uh, kind of in my early to mid teens, I was like, well, you know, what do I want to do? I want to do something for Yemen. I want to do something for the society. So energy makes sense. So initially, energy was my kind of was my was my uh, uh, rallying point. You know, that was going to be my vehicle to do something. And I went into energy and spent several years in that in that. Uh, uh, industry post uh, university and then the war broke out and that's how i fell into coffee right uh, the war broke out meant naturally that there were no energy projects that could be implemented in yemen nothing you know nothing that could be done in the next whatever decade or two so i was like well i need to find some vehicle some alternative vehicle to do something good for this country because this has been something that's been inculcated in me since since you know a very very young age so i can't just let go of that mission why coffee well i was like it has to be big 
there were two two driving factors, right? Number one, I was like, it has to be big. It has to be something that I can really scale because I'm taking a big risk in going to Yemen. I'm going to change my life. I know what Yemen is and what it looks like, especially in the midst of a conflict. So I'm taking significant risk. There's a lot. There's a, there's a lot going on here, and so it best be worth it. So it should be big and scalable. And then the other thing is, I reflected on my, and sorry, and and then you know started reading to the the history of Yemen, and I found coffee just standing there. So obviously, you know, 300 years ago, it was the, the largest export of Yemen. It was the only source in the world for coffee, right? The part of Mocha. Uh, Yemenis still grow coffee today. So I was like, wow, coffee could be could be something big. But then from the other aspect perspective i reflected on my own heritage right my own grandfather's uh, 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 so my own family's heritage sorry starting with my grandfather who left the village my grandfather was a farmer uh, and he left the village at the age of 13 to seek a better livelihood in the city right so he came from a place where you couldn't make ends meet in the village in being a farmer and he had to leave that life to go as a 13 year old like imagine what it's like right as a 13 year old going to the big wide world alone and trying to make it. And he made it and he built a, he built a large industrial group in Yemen and, and that industrial group till, till, till today is driven by this philosophy of, of, of supporting people and helping people. It's a business, but it, it's underpinned by this philosophy of, of making lives instead of making trade. That's in fact my grandfather's philosophy. He says, he says we are makers of, of, of lives, we are not makers of trade. And so naturally, you know, you know that, that then also played into the decision. Wow, like, wow, we, I, we come from agriculture and we had to leave agriculture because we couldn't make ends meet there. Um, and, uh, and then also reflecting on my grandfather's legacy and having this, this, this role model of socially impactful business, you know, bring all those three, the three things together, the, the history of coffee in Yemen, my family's history in, in agriculture, and then my grandfather's kind of positive uh, legacy. Then, then that led me naturally into pursuing coffee as, 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 as an idea. And it really was an idea. I had no idea if it was going to work or not. I didn't have any experience in coffee. So it was really a, 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 a jump into the dark. Um, but, well, I'm thankful that we're here a few years later still talking about it. Did you drink coffee at that time? <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. But I drank coffee like everyone else does. You know what I mean? Like a cappuccino. or a, I don't think flat whites were even a thing back then. Uh, so a cappuccino, a latte, you know, drinking coffee because I kind of enjoy the feel and I, I like the caffeine kick, but nothing beyond that. Right. You explained how, you know, you spent quite a bit of time in Yemen as as a child growing up there and 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 um, connect, reconnecting with your family that lived there. I imagine you got to experience life in Yemen pre-war and Yemen holds huge significance, um, both from a historical and cultural perspective perspective um and it's got a huge role in islamic history as well i've never been but i've heard really beautiful things about the country can you help paint a picture of what life looked like in yemen before the war started and how the war has actually impacted households and livelihoods since then yeah so like as you said you know uh, i was going back and forth to yemen growing up and so that was of course well well before of war, which I guess you can say started in 2015, Yemen was a poor country, right? From an economic perspective, it's always been a poor country for for for, for, for a while. It's been the poorest uh, country in MENA in the Middle East and South Africa. So it's always been, unfortunately, so it has its, its has its battles with with poverty. Um, um, so so, but before maybe I talk more about that, it's a beautiful country. It always has been a beautiful country, and it is. Uh, still a beautiful country despite what's happening. 
Uh, and I think one of the things I remember, you know, going to Yemen or, or kind of travel, visiting Yemen in my in my childhood was how different it is. And I really mean this from like a from like a, an environmental, climatic, cultural uh, 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 basis. It's just it's completely different. It really feels like you're stepping into an alternative universe. And then also people's habits and behaviors and 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 and. and you know, cultural norms are totally different and I think in a fascinating way. Um, um, so I think it really is a shame that even before the war, very few people had, had visited it and now post-war it's, it's almost impossible. Um, so, but, but diving into the economic side of it and I, and I hope that's something that changes and I do, I do dream of a day where, 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 where people, where tourists can visit Yemen on a mass and really appreciate what we're talking about. Um, but kind of diving into the say the socioeconomic aspect, you know, Yemen was poor pre 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 conflict, and then you can imagine for a country that's in poverty, when then you have a complex protracted conflict that's driven by a few different parties, uh, by, by foreign foreign powers as well as all sorts of complex internal dynamics. Then you can imagine what that does to the already poor country, right? And so Yemen went from having 40 to 50 percent of its population in poverty to 80, 80 plus percent now, uh, 20, 20, I think it's a, the population is 30 million, 24 million are at risk of hunger and disease, uh, 16 million require emergency assistance. So um, and the vast majority of, 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 of which are women and, and vulnerable children. So um, so it's in a dire situation post-conflict. Um, and it's now, as a result of the pre-existing poverty and the conflict, conflict on top of that, it's now the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And unfortunately, it's only getting worse. I, I don't really, you know, when you look at the numbers, at least the pledging numbers and the aid money flowing into the country, um, and you see that it's, 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 it's dwindling and you see the situation in Yemen internally getting worse, then you start to worry about what's, what's ahead. And then you start to understand the need for social enterprises in Yemen. Right. A country that's already dealing with poverty, forcing the local population into further poverty due to political dynamics is just incredibly devastating um, on on a massive scale in terms of future generations that will also be impacted. And 24 million people at risk of hunger and disease is just so crippling um, for locals. I'm also imagining, you know, there are cascading events in terms of the economic activity and what that has meant for for local trade. Are you able to shed a light on, you know, what the farming sector now looks like? Yeah, interesting question. Um, so, so tr- 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 trade has been crippled. Business has been crippled in Yemen uh, as a result of the conflict, and, and I'll try to explain. And in many ways, but I'll try to explain maybe some of the most important factors. Number one, uh, some because of the conflict, some individuals in in some of the various groups in Yemen have been, have been placed on sanctions lists. Individuals, not the country. And what that means now is that to, for any international organization to trade with a Yemeni bank uh, is almost impossible, right? So, so if you have if you if, if you know if you try and set up a bank account here in the UK, for example. And you and you transact one trade with a Yemeni bank, it's very very likely that your bank account will be shut, despite the fact that it's being not illegal, and that it's being perfectly above board, and that it's being not Yemen not being on the sanctions list. So that that alone already completely completely 
you know, debilitates Yemen's ability to, to trade and business, Yemeni business ability to trade internationally. Um, and then if you look at on the local local level, and, 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 and I'll talk about, I guess, farming as well, but on the local level, the private sector in general, what's happened is that many of the businesses have left, right? Because which what business wants to operate in the midst of, a, of, a, of an active conflict? Uh, and then on top of that, you had this huge... Uh, 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 entry of, of of the NGO, the international NGO community, right, development sector, on mass, um, especially for the last few years, and so and, and there was a lot of money being put into Yemen for, I guess you know those who, who, who for the for the right reasons of with with good intentions, let's say, but what happened on the ground is that all the talent in Yemen, all of them were then heading to the NGO sector, all of them. So if you look at universities, the, any, the best universities in Yemen, um, uh, 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 the, the, the graduates of those universities would all be directed to the NGOs. And the NGOs were, are backed by international money. So now speaking as a private sector player in Yemen, it is extremely difficult to hire good talent because all of it goes to the NGO sector. And the NGO sector are willing to pay five, seven, 10x uh, 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 local local rate. So imagine, like, let's let's put that into context. Imagine you're a UK business now. You just set up a startup, and you want to hire your first four or five people to help the business going, and then you find that there's some other entity uh, that's taking everything, everyone, right, everyone, and it's offering six times the salaries that you are offering, and your the salaries that you are offering are competitive. It becomes very 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 hard to operate as a business, and it becomes actually. It it, it 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 delivers the negative intended effect of what the NGOs I guess wanted. Um, so so I think that's another aspect of how aid work and uh, and 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 sustainable development are sometimes in this in this instance are sometimes kind of uh, 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 um, um, operate against each other, right? Are, 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 are sometimes odds. Um, and then farming sector, kind of delving one level deeper. Um, of course, you can imagine that Yemen's been split now into various parts, at least two parts, but but arguably more. And so, just uh, visiting the rural community, just getting there alone, becomes an absolute headache. You know, what was a three-hour or four-hour journey now becomes a, you know, eighteen to twenty-hour journey with seventy checkpoints, seven zero checkpoints, right? And each checkpoint is asking you which side you belong to. Uh, and then when you enter those those communities typically because of the security situation there's a lot of scrutiny on who you are why you're entering you get a lot of harassment from local uh, state security apparatus you know who do you belong to why are you here so it becomes very very hard to operate on a on a on a on a, on a okay, say local level especially when you get to the remote rural communities and that's in fact they're the ones that, that are in most need of the help because they're the ones that even ngos don't uh, don't reach so um so yeah i mean and the, and the last factor i think is that yemenis can't travel and this is a very practical one right yemenis can't travel so you can't open a bank account and you can't travel and we've tried that you know we've tried sponsoring yemenis you just visit just visit an exhibition with all the guarantees you can imagine you know with seven figure guarantees um and they're just not allowed they, they, they just reject they ask for all the documents and to show that the yemenis are going to go back and that they have ties to the country just to make sure that they don't uh, seek asylum and then you'll deliver all of that and still they they get uh, they get rejected so you know take all those factors into account and then you really scratch your head and you say how on earth is how on earth is business even operating in yemen 
how 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 is that country even running and that in it that in and of itself maybe a positive message is that despite all of this there are things that are still operating and the country's still running right somehow and you're running a business there yeah um, <laughs> somehow <laughs> um and i mean i mean you've just kind of described very briefly how the war, war has had a crippling impact on international trade and then you've made the decision to use coffee as a vehicle for serving locals through Kima Coffee. Can you please help us understand what Kima Coffee does and how your enterprise is actually improving the livelihoods of local rural communities, in particular alleviating the challenges that you've just described? Yeah, let's start from the top. Why we decided to do a social enterprise and not a, a charity, right? Because it's a social, what we do, Kima Coffee. So uh, Kima Coffee is a trading organization, right? What we do is that we work with a coffee trading organization. We go to farmers on the ground in Yemen. We, uh, we purchase uh, coffee from them at really good prices, really, really equitable prices. Then we, we go and market those coffees to the best coffee companies in the world. And when we get really good prices, we then go back and give higher premiums to those farmers. We share the, 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 the rewards of the prices, the profits of the prices that we receive back to. To, to farmers. So simply speaking, Kima Coffee is a, a social enterprise that uh, trades coffee and in trading coffee, we generate sustainable livelihoods for Yemen's smallholder farmers. And I, and, and I think I want to stress here that we decided to set up a social enterprise, not a charity, precisely because of the problematic position of, of uh, or, or let's say experience of the NGO sector in, in, in Yemen. Uh, and when you see that actually there's more money that's trying that sorry there's there's been a lot of money that's been going into Yemen uh, through NGOs and what's happened recently is that 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 amount of money has been dwindling right people are donors are, are starting to experience donor fatigue uh, and the situation in Yemen is exacerbating because there's no economic development then you start to have a really problematic situation so what's really important I think is that social enterprises are fundamental to Yemen now because what we've seen is that aid alone cannot cannot do it there needs to be vehicles. Uh, engines inside Yemen that can take money, generate more more money, and then distribute that to, to the local community. But that's what Kimma Coffee does. We are a coffee sourcing and trading organization uh, that delivers uh, livelihoods through coffee. Yeah, it's interesting how many social enterprises have gone down the route of exploring the nonprofit and the charity model and then realizing actually to do this work in a meaningful way for profit actually enables and creates that vehicle to be able to lift people out of poverty and create jobs and give them a dignified source of income. There are so many challenges with the NGO model. Um, a lot of money gets tied up in um, not only administration, but also through all kind of bureaucratic processes um, and also just the political um, factors that play a role there it means a lot of money does not get you know, into the hands of the people that you want that money and, uh, you know, where you want that money to end up in. And I hear this so often. It's it's also something I've also experienced working in the charity sector and the nonprofit world. And I feel like there aren't enough examples of for-profit initiatives like yours that are actually demonstrating how it can be done. I'm curious, what are the challenges that you might have come up against that has actually validated your decision to go down this route? The first challenge was, I think, perception. When people see a non-for-profit, they think, oh, great, this is doing something good and there's no alternative agenda. There's no commercial agenda to this 
entity. And I think I think there's a bit of a misconception there because I could run for a non I could run a non non for profit, and and pay myself a salary that's you know that might be five times the salary that I'm that I'm getting from a from running a for profit business. So I think there's there's one thing about perception and 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 kind of uh, 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 maybe a lack of understanding of how how value can still be can still be manipulated in within the structure of a, of an ngo i think that's what's one thing and i think there's a little bit more conversation that's needed there around you know how ngos can still actually be abused um and and i think that was the first challenge and 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 i think moving beyond that for me it's like well how do I now set up a sustainable business model that can stand up to an NGO or to an NGO case structure and people can really look at it and understand that, ow, oh, it is a for-profit, but it is really still delivering significant social value, maybe in a better way than, than an NGO would. And so what we've been busy working on is really developing a business model. It really starts with our business model. Uh, uh, how do we how do we how do we design a business model that is intrinsically uh, 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 equitable? And here we come to things like we have a profit share scheme, right? Where we first of all we go to farmers and we pay them the absolute highest prices in the market, and then we transparently sell that, those coffees, market those coffees to companies, and we tell the farmers where those where their coffees went. And with the you know with, with, with the advent of social media, it's also now great that farmers can see where their coffee goes. So there's, there's this philosophy of transparency in the business model. When the farmer then sees that their coffee was bought by, I don't know, company X, which is say one of the most uh, uh, reputable and exclusive coffee companies in the world, we then go back and if we deliver the price above X, you know, if we manage to actually sell that coffee at a good price, we then share up to 50% of the profits back to that individual farmer. Uh, and because there is this ethos of 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 of, of transparency, and there is an upfront premium that guarantees an upfront price that makes sure that, that the farmer is not going to fall into poverty. And on top of that, a reward that motivates that farmer to grow more coffee and not just look at coffee farming as a way to sustain themselves, but maybe also a vehicle of ambition. And how that manifests practically on the ground is we've had some farmers last year, for example, who who, no, who would normally get a price of around 8 to $9 a kilo for their coffee uh, who last year received around two hundred dollars a kilo uh, uh, for the very same coffee, for the very same coffee, uh, and you can imagine what that does to to farmer lives and livelihoods. You can imagine what that does also to just the spirit and ambition of farmers have, you know, because that 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 becomes contagious. That farmer, because it's also transparent, that farmer talks about it to their community, and their community gets really excited, and then you start to see this ripple effect in in neighboring communities, and then next thing you know, you have thousands. In fact, tens of thousands of, of Yemeni farmers who are now excited about growing coffee. So I think it's really a business model. And then our challenge now is how to communicate this business model in a way that people look at it and say, ah, it's not a non-for-profit, right? But we can really, it's really clear how this thing is, 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 is innovative in its, in its design and structurally uh, uh, equitable. It's, it's a difficult challenge and communicating is, is one of the hardest bits. Um, but I think the business model that we've built is really, like I said, at its very core sustainable. And that's just an example. There, there are other aspects to it, but uh, I think uh, for the, in the interest of time, we can't go into them. Why do you think other businesses aren't taking this route? Good question. I think there's this part of it that's that there's a lack of appreciation that to develop to design something really equitable, it has to be more than a slogan, right? It has to be more than buy a cup of coffee and I'll and I'll, and I'll, you know buy. Uh, 
buy a shoe and I'll, I don't want to talk about other brands, but you know, buy something and we'll donate something. That's, 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 that's good. But I think if you really want to develop something that's really sustainable, that can sustain itself as well as sustain the communities that, that it aspires to, to serve, I think you really have to go into the business model. And perhaps that's, maybe that's where the, the, the failings lie. And I think even looking at ourselves, that's where the most challenging part has been. How do we run a successful business? You know, like honestly, right? How do we run a successful business that also structurally acts to, to, to sustain lives and livelihoods? And I think it really is difficult, not difficult, but it really requires some, 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 some deep and, and, and complex uh, problem solving to really come up with something that can do that. And, 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 and maybe it's something that, that um, well, I guess we're fortunate that it's something that we've managed to come to after, still after a few years. Um, and I think the other thing that's lacking is really on the ground and on the ground understanding of the community that you're trying to serve. And so often I'd find a company that's here, maybe in the UK and talking about how uh, they are wanting to serve a community in, I don't know, in East Africa, but they have no connection to that community. They don't know it. They have no operations there, right? It's, it's noble. It's still noble in its, in its intent. Um, but I think without a deep understanding of the communities and the dynamics of those communities that you're trying to serve, um, you might be you might be tackling the wrong problem. Are there core characteristics that you look for in an enterprise that claims to be socially responsible or claims to be serving locals in a beneficial way? Um, for me personally, I think. The, the details, um, because um, what, I, what I also tend to find is that it's very easy to tell stories. It's really easy to greenwash, especially again with the advent of social media. It's really easy to for us to post a story on Instagram of a smiling farmer and say, "Look, you know, we're saving and helping farmers in this faraway land that's in, in dire need of help." And, and stop there and, and, and write some really nice copy, you know, and, and come up with some really snazzy marketing material. It's really easy to do that. Um, and I think the, the majority of consumers, majority would, would know no better. And I think it's easy to, unfortunately, just, just through the sophistication of how you can present yourself on social media and what you can hide in social media, I think it's really hard. It's really easy to, to misrepresent and greenwash. So what I look for now is depth, you know, I really want to dig into the details of, of that, say, given business or the business model or what exactly they contributed or who they contributed to. Um, 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 so, uh, and I think that's, that, that's, that's where we try to be different. You know, the, the deeper, you know, we can go as deep as people want with data and information and transparency and numbers. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think in a nutshell, I would look for I would look for how their business model is, 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 is developed. Like, is it structurally, you know, is there something in the, in the business model structure that really is fundamentally equitable? And did, is there data beyond pictures and beyond, really, beyond a really beautiful CSR page? Is there, is there real data to, to, to show, that, uh, to show that, uh, that impact? And I think it's a, it really does require knowledge of industry. So, for example, I think for me now, when it comes to coffee, I can really easy pick up really really easily pick up when when companies when it, when it's a case of greenwashing right because I really understand that industry so I think it also needs some level of expertise on the industry and then it becomes difficult how do you expect a consumer to have to have expertise in a given industry but I think broadly speaking having a sustain, having a fundamentally sustainable business model and 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 data data to show impact 
How much do you think um, having an understanding of local appetites and local needs is crucial to building a social enterprise? Because you obviously spent a significant amount of time in Yemen before you decided to take this route of building Kima Coffee. Um, there's been a number of, you know, so-called social enterprises that have been built by founders that actually have no understanding of what is happening in the communities that they want to go out and support in. And so unfortunately, a lot of those ideas have have not ended up ended up getting to market. So I'm curious to hear um how much you think having uh local knowledge and a relationship with the locals is actually key to building a successful social enterprise. Yeah, exactly, Shiza, exactly. So I think there have been some, so there are examples of, of social mod, social enterprises who, who, who try to go in and serve, 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 serve a purpose, noble as it may be, in a country they don't understand. And as you said, it, it typically tends to go belly up. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's critical to understand two things about the about where you're going or what what or the community that you're trying to serve. Number one, to understand the cultural norms, behaviors, characteristics, right, dynamics of of the of the of the country that you're trying to serve. So that for me, that was you know growing in growing up in Yemen and and also coming from Yemeni heritage. I think that that was something that was relatively natural. Uh, and, and having a lot of exposure to that country kind of growing up, that was something that was relatively natural. I, I understand, deeply understand the Yemeni culture and way of life. But I think on top of that, you really need to understand the problems that you're trying to solve. So in the case of coffee, you know, as an example, we found that there was very little information on Yemeni coffee farmers. There were lots of statements, lots of statements. Every coffee company that we'd see speaking about Yemeni coffee would say, oh, Yemeni coffee farmers need... Uh, uh, drying beds, you know, drying facilities, or they need uh, fertilizers, or you know, or Yemeni farmers need higher prices, um, and all of it was just conjecture and pontification. None, none of it was actually based on knowledge. So before we did anything, before we did any real development intervention in Yemen, and that's what we do through the Kima Foundation, we spent half a year just gathering data, right? Just really speaking to. To, 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 to hundreds of households, you know, thousands of people uh, and really understanding what are the problems that you're facing. And then that combined with cultural knowledge and nuance combined with a, 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 a good sustainable business model, that's where you see the, the magic happen. So I think it's really, really, really important. And like I said, I've, I've seen it in Yemen where, uh, where even though they understand the, the country, you know, because say it's a Yemeni coffee company and a Yemeni person running it, because there's no appreciation of, of the data, right? Really following the data and understanding what problems exist before you talk about mitigating them. Um, there's um, there's no impact. Even if the company will run and, and, and operate and, and prosper, the, the impact isn't necessarily there. Absolutely. And I also think in addition to that understanding and having their partnership and buy-in when you decide to build these solutions is quite crucial but then also innovation. So something that you've done quite uniquely in the coffee industry is introduce your auctions. Please describe what happens at these auctions and what the purpose is behind them. So the auction. So, okay. So we came into Yemen and we started talking to coffee farmers about coffee. And, you know, um, you said, because really we went to them very transparently and openly and said, look, we're trying to do something. We don't know if it's going to work. We got buy-in, right? We just showed all our cards. And so did they. So we said, they said, okay, let's let's get behind this thing. And so 
the first year or two, we were just taking coffee from the farmers, trying to find a really good market for it, trying to process it in the absolutely best, absolute best standards possible, and then um, and then um, and then rewarding farmers equitably for for that coffee. Then we came to a point where we started to see traction, right? But what we faced the problem in the markets where the market was saying, well, actually, Yemeni coffee ain't that good. Um, it's not really, you know, worth, worth well, you know, it's, it's not as good as you claim it to be or say that it is. And there were lots of legacy issues that were connected to Yemeni coffee that made, that made presenting Yemeni coffee as one of the world's best coffees really difficult. One of those legacy issues was uh, that Yemeni coffee would be traditionally mixed with other coffees, African coffees, and missold as Yemeni um, uh, just for a higher profit. Another one was that the, the quality standards in Yemen were really, were really basic, the quality, the processing standards. So the market was used to getting either bad quality Yemeni coffee or Yemeni coffee that wasn't even Yemeni coffee, that was mixed with all sorts of, of, of African coffees. So you, you'd go to the market and they would say, look, you know, it's great what you're doing, great social job, well done, pat on the back. But, um, but Yemeni coffee, you know, it can't really stand up to some of the other coffees, some of the other really good coffees around the world. Uh, and so we wanted to find a vehicle of really challenging that, right? A vehicle of challenging that on the one hand, and on the other hand, getting farmers, really exciting farmers about what can be done with Yemeni coffee. And the auction is our vehicle. So what do we do in the auction? We gather the best coffees that we have, right? We go to the farmers that we work with and we take the best, the, 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 we, we take, in fact, we take all the coffees and then we present them to a jury and that jury, they select in the very best of the of, of the coffees that we have. So this year, we're talking about the top 1% of, of the coffees. And we put them into this international online auction. And at the same time, we go to the market and we say, you know what? You're not sure about Yemeni coffee? Try these coffees, right? Try the best of Yemen auction coffees. Um, and, uh, and so we start to engage the market. And in the market, they start to take samples, right? That's how the coffee industry works. They buy a sample set and then they taste what you have to offer. And then, so suddenly we started to see, well, farmers getting excited. The market started to engage with these with these coffees and the feedback was really good. And then when we ran our first auction, we broke records. The first auction, I think, achieved a price of $200 a kilo or so. Uh, and, then, and then last year's auction, we were already on almost $450 or $500 a kilo. So we're now breaking records through these auctions. What that means is that the market is appreciating and acknowledging. And that's some of the highest, I mean, the numbers I'm quoting here are some of the highest prices for coffee in the world right period um and so now the market is really appreciating you know now we've managed to create momentum in the market where wow some of the world's best companies are engaging these auction and paying these these prices for 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 these exceptional coffees and so we've managed to now build this create this reputation you know rebuild this reputation for for yemen coffee in the market again and of course on on yemen's side when your if your auction goes to if your coffee goes to auction, then you get rewarded hundreds of dollars a kilo, right? That's what you get to your hand, and so if you have farmers really looking at this almost like a like a like a like a like a like a an equivalent of a, of a lottery, like a life changing life changing platform that if they get into and if their coffee actually makes it and if they win, then it can really transform their life, right? It can really transform their life. Um, and um, and it's been really successful. We're in the fourth year of the, of the auction installment now. It's in fact coming up in what ninth of August in, in two days. Sorry, two weeks. Um, and we've managed, like I said, we've really managed to create this momentum behind Yemeni coffee. And now it's really nice that we're seeing other uh, 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 um, uh, auctions in Yemen 
uh, other people talk about Yemen coffee. Uh, uh, other companies come up in Yemen really talking about the exclusivity and the high quality of Yemeni coffee. So it's good that we're also starting to build a uh, a, a coffee business community in Yemen as a result of of, uh, of what was done. That's truly incredible. I just love how you're finding all these different ways of advancing your work, but also multiplying the impact for the locals in Yemen, given that is your core focus and that that is what drives the work at Kima Coffee. One other thing that you've done is launch Kima Foundation. Can you please describe what projects you're currently working on there and how that is actually helping you create further impact um, within Yemen? Yeah, Kima Coffee was launched 2016, Kima Foundation 2018. I launched Kima Foundation because I was a bit frustrated at the fact that no no aid money in Yemen, virtually none, was going to development projects. All of it was going into human, emergency humanitarian relief or assistance. So things like medical, food, water, absolutely necessary. Don't get me wrong, absolutely necessary. But like I, I, I think I've been saying time and time again in this discussion, if there's no medium to long-term development work done in Yemen, that then then Yemen is is running to a cliff edge. You know, really, it's not running full steam ahead towards a cliff edge. Uh, and so that was a frustration, and and and, and that led me to develop Kima Foundation really as a vehicle, as a non-for-profit vehicle, purely non-for-profit, to focus on development projects in Yemen, focusing on Yemen's rural communities, not just coffee. Uh, and what we what we do there is really we contribute part of the money from Kima Coffee and part from from different development partners or even coffee companies. So a recent project we we, we just completed, in fact, was with the Lavazza Foundation. Um, and we partnered together with them to do a, a two-year project, which uh, which consisted of a, 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 a model, what we call a model farm. So a place, a farm where farmers can come and experiment on because we might have some really innovative ideas on how to improve your coffee growing. But we're not going to ask a farmer to do it and take that risk, right? Because that's their livelihood that's going to be affected. So we have now a place where we can carry out experiments to see what, how do we improve farmers' productivity, farmers' profitability without asking farmers to take the risk. And it's also a place where farmers can come and train on. And then we also built a, um, a, uh, a what we call a, a nursery, a coffee nursery, so in, in, which is basically a place where, where farmers can get coffee plants from, seedlings to plant. And in Yemen, it's really important now that if you're encouraging farmers to to plant, to grow more coffee, the first thing that a farmer will then look for is where do I get my coffee tree from, right? The fundamentals. So what we're building in Yemen, what we just built, in fact, is, is Yemen's first large-scale nursery. This nursery makes 150,000 seedlings a year, and we're giving them away for free to farmers. Uh, and so now farmers have a place where they can go to get a seedling and get a, a plantlet, a small coffee tree. Uh, and the great thing about it is that all of the, the, the this nursery that, that gives these 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 plantlets is genetically verified, which means that the coffees that farmers get are from genetics that na- they now know. And when it comes to the world of coffee, and I, I don't want to go too deep into it, but genetics are really important. Coffee varieties are really really important. And if you plant the right variety, you'll get a much higher quality, a much higher production, a much higher price for your coffee than if you plant another variety. So what we've built now is is a, is a place where farmers can go to and get good varieties from so that they can maximize their income. Uh, and then there's also another large component to the project that was around gender, gender equity, gender justice. We found that in Yemen, there was, there, was, there was more that needed to be done in terms of female inclusion in rural communities. So we asked the question, when, when, it's, a, when, it's, a, when it's a farm that, that is owned by a woman, uh, how, how many of the, who is the first decision maker 
right? Even if it's owned by a woman. And we found that actually 90% of the time, the first decision maker was, was, uh, was the male. Uh, and so, you know, that's an indication that more, there needs to be more female inclusion in the rural communities in Yemen. So what we did there is we're establishing direct trade relationships with female farmers in Yemen, where we buy the coffee from them directly, reward them directly to their hand. Um, so then they have some sort of economic, uh, economic uh, inclusion and, 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 and reward. And I have to say, we do this within the context of respecting the culture and respecting the dynamics of the household in Yemen and not trying to introduce any 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 whatever any foreign slash colonially inspired or driven you know views on how a household should be run and how gender gender dynamics should should function so we really come at it from a very neutral perspective and we're just trying to to drive more in uh, more uh, more equity uh, uh, in the value chain um so that's an example of a project where, that we do with the Kimber Foundation we also do sponsorships for children of Educational sponsorship, sorry, for children of uh, of single mother households, right? Single mother households. So either if they're uh, if they lost their partner, or as a result of the war, they're widowed, or or anything like that. And that's a community that tend to be the, one of the most vulnerable, and of course, their children by by extension are. So we we offer sponsorships to some of the best schools in Yemen for children of, of single mother households, and I think we've sponsored something like 30, 40 years plus of education, uh, and then we do. Um, we do a lot of uh, irrigation networks and reservoir networks because in Yemen, you really need water to grow anything, not just coffee. Uh, and so we're developing kind of the irrigation reservoir infrastructure in Yemen so that farmers can uh, can uh, can carry on growing productively and sustainably. I've always been blown away by your work, but just hearing some of these projects about how you're working on additional projects is just further blowing my mind because... If Kima Coffee was resourced like the bigger corporations are, I can't imagine what the economic landscape would look like for Yemen, in particular the lives of the locals that are dependent on enterprises like yours, that are dependent on trade and are dependent on income sources that you're clearly creating through so many different avenues. So I guess this would be a closing question. In your view, what will it take to create more Kima coffees and to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to do this work and to continue doing this work? Because clearly it's so much needed and clearly there is a path to doing this right, but we need more of it. Well, that's a big question. I'm not sure how to uh, (laughs) answer that. So I think... um, uh, if I break it down in my head, I think it's it, two things need to happen, right? Good examples of social enterprises, right? And I'm not necessarily going to say Kima, right? It's not, it's, it's a bit disingenuous to talk about yourself, but there are good examples out there, right? But good examples of social enterprises to, uh, need to be out there and need to do more to promote other examples of social enterprises, right? Or to promote new people coming in and and, and mentor the up-and-coming generation of, of social entrepreneurs. I think that's that really needs to happen because, you know, the last five or six years, we've, we've done a lot, right? We've experienced a lot, we've built a lot, and we've done so with really limited resources, and we've done so without mentorship, you know, really, like without mentorship. And I think something that would have really helped me is to have really good mentors uh, that can help guide, you know, what we're doing and what I'm doing, you know, and, and where we're going. So I think looking back, that's something that would have been really, really useful to help to help maximize impact and, and maybe even get into chemo coffee. Um, and then on the other hand, 
we need to have more social social entrepreneurs stepping up. You know what I mean? And um, and I think it's 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 a big risk. You know, even thinking back on my own experience, it's a massive risk, right? I left the corporate world, I had a family to take care of, and I left it really not knowing where it's going to go or how I'm going to sustain myself in the next kind of year or two years or or so on and so forth. So I think there is there are risks involved, right? It takes some level of 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 courage or foolishness or however you want to see it right some some hopeful naivety and i think it's important to be naive it's it's a good thing to be naive despite the negativity of that word because we need a certain level of 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 of, of naive hopefulness to, to to take on the darkness that's in the world right we need to be a little bit naively hopeful because if we're completely stoic and realistic maybe we wouldn't do anything so I think it's two, both those things need to happen. We need to have more social social entrepreneurs, you know, leaving these fantastic corporate jobs because because that's where the best and brightest seem to go, or, or some of them, and and really stepping into the social entrepreneurship game. And then on the other hand, we need to have a community that's there to take them and 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 help guide them through the experiences that we are we have been through as social social entrepreneurs, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, and I think a combination of those things will 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 hopefully. We'll hopefully see a, a better, bolder, and stronger generation of, of social entrepreneurs uh, coming up. Thank you so much, Faris, for taking time to share your work with us. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for your inspiring advice. I am definitely leaving this conversation optimistic about the social enterprise sector, knowing that there are leaders like yourself doing this much-needed work. Final ask, where can our listeners get their hands on Kima Coffee and engage with Kima Foundation? Thanks uh, very much, Lisa. So uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been really good, uh, really good being here. Um, I, yes, and I, I would encourage people getting involved with social enterprises, how people can get involved with Kima Coffee and Kima Foundation. Uh, Kima Coffee, we're setting up a cafe. We're building a cafe uh, in, uh, in London that will be launching in a few weeks' time, mid, uh, mid-August. Uh, and that's in Warren Street. So you can go to www.kimacafe.com to check that out. Kima Foundation, uh, we're going to be opening up for, for, for donations from the, from the public. We've set up now a UK charitable uh, uh, organization. So we'll be engaging with the UK community and the international community through Kima Foundation soon. Uh, and again, go to kimafoundation.com to learn more about that. Um, and uh, other than that, I think engage with social enterprises, talk more about uh, uh, coffee. Talk more about Yemeni coffee. Understand a little bit more about where your coffee comes from when you, when you're speaking to your barista the next time you get your uh, morning uh, coffee, uh, and keep supporting good causes. Thank you, Faris. Wishing you the very best with the launch of your flagship store, and we'll include the link that you mentioned um, in the show notes as well. Thanks very much, Ashiza. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to Rohan Singhal for editing this episode. To ensure you are notified of future conversations on impactful strategies and organizational practices, please subscribe or follow Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you enjoyed our episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your community so that others can learn about the incredible work that so many people are stewarding to build a better future for us all. You can connect with us and learn more about our work at www.theuppereffect.com. Thanks again for listening.